Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of If Women Were Meant to Fly, The Sky Would Be Pink. Episode 2, The Female Chief Pilot. I'm Enid O'Toon. In this episode, the decision about my future must be made, as the offer will not remain on the table for much longer. The deed is done, and I start the next phase of my journey. With a difficult decision made, I had to face everyone that would be affected by it. This was the part that I didn't like. I didn't like upsetting or letting people down, especially when they'd played a significant role in my life. The people I feared hurting the most were the people I saw every day on the ramp and in the crew room. The engineers that I had so many conversations with when the aircraft didn't do what I wanted it to do. The flight dispatchers with whom I had a love-hate relationship. You see, I hated them for making me feel like I was an outcast as a woman, although this was at the very beginning of my career. And then I loved them because they came to accept it as normal and accepted the process that I insisted upon, even when they were pressurised by the passengers to add that extra piece of baggage or that additional passenger when we didn't have the capacity available for it. A lot of this came after I'd been assigned to travel to all the bases to train the dispatchers officially. This was a first in any official capacity, and it meant having to put on my chief flying instructor hat and apply it to the commercial world. In truth, I enjoyed the process, and I think our shell-provided dispatchers felt that they were finally being appreciated as an integral part of the whole process. I still remember the archaic way we had of working out the weight and balance of the aircraft, which mostly involved the usual practice of weighing all the luggage, but also weighing all the passengers, large and small. We had standard weights for adult passengers and split them into male and female weights as we do today, but sometimes the dispatchers felt that they could be a little lax with the estimated figures, and on more than one occasion we found ourselves grossly overweight as we watched the passengers trundle out to the aircraft. Some were definitely not the weight indicated, and we had to adjust visually, or sometimes insist that all passengers were re-weighed to establish the correct figures. As amusing as it appeared, a vastly overweight aircraft could become a catastrophic event, and that was never going to be an option. I was a particular stickler for valid figures, and many times I had the poor dispatchers loading and offloading to get the cargo, both human and otherwise, correct. I often planted a real picture in the dispatcher's mind when I described an overloaded Twin Otter or King Air or Citation Jet starting its takeoff roll, only to find that it was too heavy to get airborne and watch as it ploughed into the cassava farm at the end of the runway. Or my personal favourite, getting airborne with a too-far-aft centre of gravity and watching as we ended up crashing back onto the runway with the loss of all on board. Dramatic? Yes, maybe. 
But we knew and know of too many mistakes just like this that were made. And although it would always be the pilot in command's final decision, I wanted all concerned to have a stake in the safe operation of the aircraft. We often had to operate out of Jos in the northern Nigeria, where our shell staff would go for some R&R without a dispatcher and do the deed ourselves. Many a basket of fruit was left on the apron when we deemed that passengers had been a little too overzealous in their local purchases. These things were loaded with pineapples and watermelons and all manner of large and heavy produce as well as sacks of potatoes, some weighing in excess of 50 kilos a bag, not to mention the additional 50 kilo bags of rice. I would already have decided as we taxied in when I saw the mountains of bags piled up on the trolleys to be loaded for our return flights. Furiously shaking my head and dreading the smell of dried fish wafting into the flight deck from the forward cargo hold for all of the three-and-a-half-hour flight back to Lagos. Soon, however, all this would be but a distant memory as I prepared to leave the safety and sanctity of my first commercial job and take on the biggest role of my life so far. My send-off from Bristow's was touching and heartwarming, and I vowed to see all my colleagues regularly, no matter where I was. In this case, I was two gates down, less than a two-minute walk. My first few weeks would be spent acquiring a new type rating on the Cessna 425 aircraft and getting to know the crew already in place. There were three co-pilots and one captain. I'd known him for several years and had heard all the accompanying stories about him as flight crews traversed the length and breadth of the country. He knew I was coming, and he was prepared to welcome me as his relief pilot. That was how it had been sold at the time. The truth was that he was in trouble. He had been caught doing things that were unbecoming as a professional, let alone a pilot, and the time had come to rein him in. Little did he know at the beginning that he would always be flying with me as I became the eyes and ears of the company. I know that sounds like a compromising position to be in, but the company was planning on expansion and it wanted the best flight crew and operations staff as it prepared to take on new aircraft. This captain, who shall remain nameless, had been flying the aircraft all over the country, logging hundreds of flight hours on the aircraft and engines, and not been accurately reporting it in the technical log, which is the Bible when it comes to aircraft operations. The technical log, or tech log as we called it, holds all the aircraft's information relating to the number of hours on the engine and airframe, and is an indispensable log to track engine and airframe performance and wear and tear. In this case, the aircraft was short hundreds of hours of critical information as he flew and did not log the flights that were carried out, whilst personally charging passengers for the privilege. This was so far from my beliefs and training that I had to hold my tongue on many occasions to avoid explosive confrontations. However, I was an experienced captain at this point and uncompromising when it came to company loyalty and safety, Once I had completed my initial training and passed my type rating exam, it was time for things to change. Realising that the game was very nearly up, 
and he was about to be caught, he resigned. As I settled into my new role, I realised that I had an exceptional amount of work to do to build the operations team and flight crew morale back up from scratch. I became Pan African Airlines' first and only female chief pilot in a small ceremony in the CEO's office and hit the ground running the next day as the US owners were in town to oversee the rebuilding of the company. If you are wondering what happened to my predecessor, worry not. He found work flying another aircraft and filling the airways with his brand of an incredibly unique American accent tinged with a Nigerian accent, born from his time in the States. It was a source of much ribbing from his flight crew colleagues, including myself. The only thing I will say is that the team in place when I arrived were genuinely excited to start this new phase. And when I sat down with each of them, they were only too eager to tell me the ins and outs of what I had taken on. It proved eye-opening and challenging as I compiled my reports for the new owners. We needed major investment, but we also needed to be accountable for it. For the first time, I had to draw on everything I had learned and stored away for just such an occasion. If we were going to attract the best local talent and acquire the big charter contracts, putting us on an equal footing with a number of big companies that we were in competition with, it would take me the best part of two years to get us where I wanted to be, and it would be fraught with challenges and a leap into the unknown for me. We were, however, off to a good start. Once staff realised that they could be a valuable asset to the process. My ops team were ready and willing to do things the right way. The flight crew were willing to be retrained and the engineering team were ready to welcome new aircraft. My chief engineer was a tall Swedish chap who I highly respected and who was a ray of sunshine every time I saw him. It was like looking up at a skyscraper. He was so tall and lean and blonde. He was also one of the best engineers that I'd ever met, and I was to go on to learn a lot from him. This was all just the tip of the iceberg, and I had not been this excited about anything since my mother presented me with my first car when I turned three. My big red Thunderbolt pedal car, built for cruising the mean patio streets of our sixth-floor flat near Tanubu Square on Lagos Island. In my bright yellow dress and white sandals, I would be the envy of every little girl and boy on the street. Uh, the black and white picture of this event is currently on our social media pages. However, when it came to being the first female chief pilot in Nigeria, it paled into insignificance. Thank you for listening. As always, your reviews and comments are very much appreciated. Thank you to Lucy Ashby for the editing of this episode. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please do so on our social media sites. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or send us an email. Our email address is theskyispinkpilot at gmail.com or visit our website www.theskyispink.co.uk In the next episode, I rewrite the complete company operations manual along with processes and company operations procedures, staff and retrain the flight operations team and flight crew, and start to transform the aspirations and fortunes of this new charter company. Thank you, and goodbye.